A reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. Come into the reading room, all you lovers of language and literature. This is the place for those of us who believe that reading is essential as we seek to rise above the ordinary. And the reading room contains a host of extraordinary people, leading lights of the written word. Authors, literary critics, columnists and ideas people will tantalize your minds with their wordplay while discussing the ideas and worldviews that form our wonderful literary milieu. Come step into a world of magic, the place of undiscovered treasures, a room of reading. And once again, welcome into the reading room, the place where we find out about authors, about what they write, about what they like, about the written word itself, and to give you some reason to go out and keep on supporting reading, which is, of course, one of the most important things in the world. And one of my favorite, favorite people, South African, now not living in South Africa anymore, where she used to be just down the road from her, which is why I know so much about her, but now living over in lovely London, it's the gorgeous Rosi Anablom, as we like to call her, Rosie Fiore. Thanks for joining us in the reading room today. It's lovely to see you, Melly, and it's I'm really, really grateful that you asked me to do this. Now, where are you actually? You're in London, North London? I'm in northwest London in an area called Mill Hill, and I can categorically tell you it's the best part of London. Where we live is unbelievably green. I can walk five minutes from my house and be walking in proper wild countryside where there are horses. And I live next to a golf course where there are little deer that run around and rabbits and foxes. Uh, but we're 25 minutes from town on the tube. So it's just about perfect. It's great. Now, as it sounds idyllic, and that's the kind of place that everybody thinks that they're going to go and live in in London. The truth, a lot of the time, unfortunately, is like you end up in a basement flat in Pimlico or something, which is not ideal. But why? Why we're going to get into where you, what you did here in South Africa? Why the move from South Africa to England? What made you make that change in your life? Well. I'd always felt an affiliation for the UK. Um, my mother was Scottish, born and bred in Glasgow, and I fell in love with London the first time I visited it when I was five. And my lifetime dream, as Melly will know, being an old friend, was that I wanted to write books and be published, but be published in the UK, which for me was the home of literature. I had a job opportunity that gave me the opportunity to move to the UK in 2000. So I know that for a lot of South Africans who leave the country, it's about moving away from. And for me, it definitely wasn't. It was about moving to. Mm. It was about moving to an opportunity to participate in the publishing industry in the UK. Wider opportunities for my son, who was seven when we left and is now 28. Um, <laughs> is it really 21 years? I can't believe it. It is 21 years this August since we left. But yeah, and it was 100% the right choice. I don't love everything about the UK. Certain recent political choices have given me the grey hairs, you can see. But I am a Londoner and I love the city with all my heart. Mm. It still makes me excited every time I go into town, see the Thames. I love it. 
I think that if you've lived in London, there's always going to be that part of your heart which really hankers for it when you're not there. And even if I was, even if I'm an actual proper Pompey lass from Portsmouth and all, I still would consider myself more of a Londoner than anything else, apart from obviously being a Joey's O, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we Joburg people are a thing. And especially the people from the Hurst, which is where Rosie also used to live. Now, when, let's go back, right back. And I mean, I met you. When you were doing comedy games, I'm sure it was around about that time. It was around about that time and when we were both also working on magazine program for MNET. Yes, um, front row. Making inserts and stuff. It was front row. And so I was working in television, writing and producing and doing a lot of uh, writing for TV mainly. So my background was initially in theatre. I trained you were an actor. Um, at WITS. Well, there you go, <laughs> more or less. <laughs> I trained at Vitz in drama and then moved more and more into writing, first writing plays, then writing for television and then working in the field of corporate communications, which is what brought me over to the UK. Mm. Okay, so the whole thing about writing, I mean, I, I know that you used to do that and we, being a scriptwriter as well, we both wrote for television and you... I mean, some of us went on to go and do things which were very factual, writing books and writing articles about that kind of stuff. For me, and people have said to me, why don't you write a book? And I said, but I have written a book. I have a beautiful gardening book. And they said, no, no, write a book of fiction. And that's the difference. When I was a youngster and I said I wanted to write a book, I didn't think it would come out being a gardening book. Okay, But for you, where on earth does the inspiration come from? Let's take it right back to the very beginning, the first book you wrote. What was that and where did it come from? They always say that the first book you write is partially autobiographical, and that was certainly the case with me. I wrote a book about a South African woman who moves to London. Her circumstances were very different from mine, and her reasons for arriving and the things that she'd left behind were very different. But I wanted to illustrate that the extremity of immigration, and obviously immigrating to a country where people speak English is a lot easier than immigrating to Mm. one where they don't. But the thing that struck me most when I moved here was how I thought I understood Britain because I understood, um, you know, I spoke English and I'd seen 40 towers. So obviously I knew everything. (laughs) Um, And the cultural differences are enormous and it takes a long, long time to find your feet in a different country. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to write about that. And um, so I wrote This Year's Black. And I remember when Um, you brought it out and I was so excited. My friends published a book. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, it was, I was extraordinarily lucky because our lovely mutual friend, Sue de Groot, mm. um, who is a features editor now on the Sunday Times, had a connection with Oshin, who were a division of Strake at the time. Mm. And I was in South Africa for family reasons. And she said to me, look, I know you've written a book. Would you like to meet with them? Because I know that they're looking for authors to take on. And literally overnight, I had a publishing deal which, let me tell you, is not the way it works here in the UK. <laughs> no, no, South Africa is a very um, different animal. Mm. Yeah, so I was, you know, I'm enormously, enormously grateful to Strike for that initial opportunity. And they published that and Lame Angel, which was my second novel. And how did the, the whole thing come about in England? Take us through the process of, of people thinking, oh, yeah, it's so easy to get published. And we've seen movies where people have got like 45 million rejection slips. Did you go through yeah, all of that thing I, as well? I don't. I apologize to any writers listening to this. I do not wish to break your hearts. Obviously, there are wonderful stories about writers who get snapped up by the first agent they submit to and have wonderful bidding wars from lots of publishers. But 
I was published by Ocean and I thought, well, obviously, then it's going to be easy to get a UK agent and a UK deal. So I put together a package with a copy of my book, a sheaf of reviews and started sending it out to agents. It took me four years to get a UK agent. I got turned down by everybody, Mm. absolutely everybody. And eventually I received an offer from a very, very junior agent at an agency called the Marsh Agency. I was the second writer she ever took on. And it took another five years and I had to write another two books Mm. before we finally got a publication deal with my first UK publisher. So in all, it took me four books and nine years. So what did they take on this year's Black Lame Angel, the third and fourth ones? So this year's Black and Lame Angel have only been published in South Africa. Oh, only in South They've Africa, never been really? Up here. Yeah. Then I wrote a book that still breaks my heart that nobody ever published called Ransom to the Fall, which was about a kind of a fictional writer of fantasy novels who has a cult following and the effect of that on her family after she dies. Mm. And I really loved it, but we pimped it to every publisher in town and nobody bought it. Um, Self-published, Rosie. Then... We'll have another book. You can have your own book which you're putting out there. <laughs> oh, 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 I get weary at even the thought of the work that would need to be done. <laughs> um, then I got married and I had Ted um, and I wrote Babies in Waiting, which was a book about women who meet online in like a baby forum, like Beautiful Mumsnet. book. Beautiful book. And that was the one that got published. It was a, I, I went out to write something super commercial. Mm. And that's what I did. And I was published by Quirkus, um, who at the time were an independent house. They're now part of one of the big publishing monsters. Mm. Okay. So then there were other books that came. And um, after Isabella, there was Baby in Waiting. Was the Little Shop of Friendship? Ah, uh, yes. That was initially called Wonder Women. Yes. Um, and that came just after Babies in Waiting, also similarly very, very commercial. And I think that this is important to understand is that those two books were published and they did well. I mean, mm. they did really well. They sold, I think the estimate was about 60,000 copies. And then Orion went, yeah, no, we don't think we want to publish anything more from you. And I was back to square one. And I think people think you get a publishing deal and that's it. You're on the road and it's you're away. And it's not like that. It's very, very much the same as it is for actors. You're only as good as your last job. Mm. So I started again from scratch at that point. It took me a couple of years to write After Isabella, which was very different, a very much more serious book about bereavement and friendship and older women and that took a long time to find a publisher and I went in the end we went with Alan and Unwin who were a much smaller publishing house Mm. and they published that one and my next one which was what she left but yeah again kind of having to start from scratch yeah must must be quite heartbreaking in some ways yeah (laughs) and it's happened to me since again I know um, why what's happened now Well, after what she left, well, in fact, in the middle of what she left, I was approached by Orion. They had an idea for a novel and they wanted someone to write it. Mm. Um, So I wrote The Afterwife, which was written under a pseudonym because I was under contract to another publisher. And that was supposed to be my big break. And in many ways it was. Mm. Um, I was extraordinarily lucky. They sold lots and lots of international translations of it, which if you want to make a living from books is the way you do. Mm. Um, Those advances are 
hilarious. Hilarious. Oh, really? <laughs> and, and wasn't there talk yeah. of it actually being made into a movie as well at some stage? Didn't somebody buy the rights? Well, yes, but in the film producer in China holds the rights. Mm. But not surprisingly, not a lot of news comes out of China. So I don't have any idea of what's happened with that. Yes, we'll Cass Hunter, we know this. <laughs> Sorry. That, <laughs> by the way, I do know. I know what your other yeah. name is. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, it's uh, it's great fun having a pseudonym. Although I had to make up a signature for signing books, <laughs> it felt really silly. <laughs> but I mean, that is what has been commercially your your bestseller in your eyes. I oh mean, yeah, I mean, the Afterwife. From that perspective, the fact that it got worldwide release, it was released in nine countries, mm-hmm. other than you know, obviously, you get the UK and the Commonwealth, which includes Australia and South Africa and places like that. But then it was translated into German, French, Italian, Serbian, Bulgarian, Japanese, Korean, which simplified Chinese, which is Korean, Chinese, mm-hmm. and another one. And uh, yeah, so I mean, that's an extraordinary thing when you get sent a copy of your book in a different language. And you can't even um, read it, yeah. But no. <laughs> that's quite sad, though, that your, your bestseller has actually not even been under your own name. Yeah, I mean, it's okay, because almost every writer I know writes under more than one name. You'd be surprised who is really? also somebody else. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been to writers' dinners where we all sit down and we go, hi, I'm Rosie, and I'm also Cass. And someone goes, oh, I'm um, Rowan Coleman, but I'm also Bella Harris, you know, and everyone's everyone's got more than one name. I did not know that this was a thing. I knew about some people working under pseudonyms, but this is like, really? Yeah. No, it's a, people do it for a couple of reasons. Mm. One is, if like me, you're under contract to one publisher, often they don't want you to bring out another book under your name with another publisher because it's confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes people do it because they want to write in a different genre. And then another thing is if you've brought out a book under one name and it hasn't done terribly well, it makes it quite difficult for them to sell it into booksellers. Mm-hmm. If they bring it out under another name, they type your name into a computer and nothing is associated with it. So oh, okay. it's what we do to avoid what they call bad track. Oh, oh, okay. We're learning all of these things now. It's, it's lovely to be able to actually speak to somebody who's been through this process, who hasn't self-published, yeah. who's outside of South Africa, but understands the whole South African dynamic as well. But so where are you at the moment? Where in the process are you at the moment? Oh, okay. So just to finish the things not working out story, mm. while The Afterwife sold really well around the world, it didn't do particularly well in the UK. And in the end, Orion decided not to take another book from me. And it was genuinely <laughs> devastating. I can't begin to say, um, you know, I really thought this was it. I was flying, that things were going really well. And I decided at the same time that it was time to leave my agent. She'd been great. But our paths had kind of, you know, moved in different mm-hmm. directions. So two years ago, I had no agent, no publisher. I was properly back to square one. And I honestly thought nothing would ever happen for me again. Mm-hmm. So I decided to do master's degree in creative writing to build my craft, to build my confidence. So I did that at Royal Holloway University of London, which was great. And I learned a lot from that. And then in 2019, I took a swerve back into my old background, which is theatre, and in a fit of madness, wrote and directed a stage adaptation of Dracula, which is a book I'd been obsessed with for years. Yeah. Um, and I also th- always thought, if you've actually read the book, I've never seen a good adaptation of it. It never actually reflects what's in the book, and it's such a great book. Mm. 
So I did that and nearly gave myself a stroke because it was so stressful. <laughs> um, but I spent a year immersed in Dracula. And then about a week after the production finished, I was driving somewhere and I suddenly thought, there's a whole different way to look at the story of Dracula. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how familiar you are with the book. But Dracula's first victim in the UK is a young woman called Lucy Westenra. And she's this pretty girl. And the first time we meet her, three young men propose to her and she's a bit flirtatious. And Dracula lands in Whitby in North Yorkshire. And he begins to feed on Lucy. And despite people trying to save her, she dies. And then when they bury her in a tomb in North London, she becomes undead and she goes out on Hampstead Heath and hunts children. And ultimately, they have to trap her in a coffin and kill her again because mm. she's a vampire. And I was always really interested in the character of Lucy. And I saw a way to flip the whole story on the head and make the story about Lucy Westenra and about the fact that being a woman in the Victorian era was quite dangerous enough without there being a vampire outside your window. Um, and there Do are you lots really of other believe things. in vampires, Rosie Fiore? <laughs> I mean, really? <laughs> well, interestingly, I've written a 450-page book based on Dracula in which the word Dracula does not appear even once. Okay. Um, so the new book is called The Death and Life of Lucy Westenra, and it's a complete feminist retelling of the story. And I'm hugely excited about it. Is so, it out yet? Is it coming out? No, no. On the basis of it, I now have a new agent, which is absolutely wonderful. Mm. Um, she's called Katie Greenstreet. She's with an agency, a very, very highly regarded agency called C&W. And we are working on final edits and going out on submission. But there's been a lot of interest from editors. So I'm super hopeful. But yeah. I'm, I've reinvented myself as a historical novelist. Oh, and my goodness, I've I love it. I've never been happier. <laughs> I love it. I think that's fantastic. I mean, it's just like completely different. And that's one of the things I want to talk to you about. I mean, there, there's this whole, I mean, as, you know, so many people kind of like, go, it's like Louis L'Amour in the Western novels, chiclet. I mean, it is very easy reading, probably not very easy writing. And... The whole chiclet thing. I, mean, I love chiclet books, and there's so many authors that I just I say, oh, that person's got a new book out. I'm going to read that because it is that particular kind of genre. Do you have a lot of male readers, or do you think most of your um, your, your fans are all female? I think it depends on the book. I think we're a long way from equality in terms of reading. I mean, mm. the statistics are quite simply between 75 and 80 percent of fiction is bought by women. And that's male and female authors. Women read more fiction. Men tend to read more nonfiction. It's mm -hmm. just the way these things fall. Like every writer, I rail against the notion of being marketed as a women's author writing for women. You know, the publishing industry is so conservative in terms of the way they position books, in terms of the way they, the covers they put on books, the blurbs they put on them. They do tend to skew towards the audiences they know will buy rather than trying to seek new audiences. Mm. And, I, you know, I'm beginning to see shifts both in terms of the kinds of authors that are beginning to get deals and the way things are being marketed. So I hope I hope things will open out a bit more. Mm. Let's hope so. I know a lot of men who read fiction. In fact, most of my books um, that I was always swapping out to people were with guys. <laughs> so I, was, mm. I didn't realize that about the actual figures. I always thought that men and women read as much equally because I come from a very reading family. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I know 
most of the men I know don't read a lot of fiction. They will tend to read non-fiction, biographies, that kind of thing. Or look at books with pictures or the far side. Mm. <laughs> Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> <laughs> the best stuff in the world ever. I mean, absolutely, Madison, just really, I love Calvin and Hobbes. It's my one of my favorite things in the whole world. But now... What? Okay, so you've got another book hopefully coming out. Have you been teaching again? Because that's another one of the things that you're, one of the little arrows you have sitting in your quiver on the back there, shooting yeah. madly away into the field of academia. Have you been teaching yeah, a lot um, again? Well, I do a combination of things. So I did a postgraduate certificate in higher education, which means I can lecture at university level, but nobody will let me because I don't have a PhD. I think it's a lot tougher in the UK here than it is in other countries to, to get an academic position. But I do teach. I teach creative writing. I teach business writing. And I also work for an amazing organization that I would like to give a shout out for called Jericho Writers. Hmm. They work worldwide who offer editorial services to writers. So I spend quite a lot of my time reading novels written by other people and writing really detailed editorial reports for them to help them improve their books if they're gunning for publication. Um, You've got an author's group as well, because before we started talking to you and before you even had your breakfast this morning, you were online in the company of a whole bunch of other writers being quiet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is an amazing thing that I discovered via a playwriting friend of mine. It's called The Writer's Hour, um, and you can Google it. And basically, at 8 a.m. in various parts of the world, writers gather in a Zoom call for an hour and write in silence together. And it sounds really crazy. But we have five minutes at the beginning where everyone types in the chat and says hi and where they are in the world and what they're going to be working on. Someone gives an inspirational quote and then we all write in silence with our cameras on, which gives you a, you know, a sense of company and a degree of accountability because you can't really be, I don't know, scrolling Facebook while everyone's watching you. Well, you can, I suppose. But I really like it. So there's an 8 a.m. London one, which would be what, 9am in Johannesburg, yeah, I think? Yeah, well, depending on this, at yeah. the moment it's 9 o'clock, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then 1pm here, which is 8am in New York, then there's an LA one in the late afternoon, and if you're an insomniac, they do an 8am in New Zealand as well. And uh, yeah, so you can spend an hour once a day, four times a day, whatever you like, just writing in the company mm. of others, and I love it. I find it a really good start to the day. But now there's this thing, if you're a writer, I mean, do you sit there and think, oh, I've got inspiration, now I'm going to go and sit down and write what I've just thought about? Or are you one of the people who gets up, gets dressed, makes the bed and then goes and sits down in your office in front of your computer and starts writing that this is now your working day? How, how does your process work? Um, <laughs> uh, it's taken me many, many years to realize that almost no writing happens sitting at the computer. It takes a lot of working stuff out. Obviously, particularly with historical stuff, there's a lot of research, mm -hmm. some of which is on the computer, some of which is delving into books or going to libraries or whatever. But the best moments of writing happen for me when I'm hanging the washing out, having a bath, things will begin to work themselves out in my head. Uh, in terms of actual words on the page, I have a system which I started with my first novel and on my 12th novel, I'm still doing it, where I write 1,200 words a day, every day, seven days a week when I'm writing a first draft. Um, How long does that take? Anything between an hour and a half and a whole day. 
depending on on how it's going. (laughs) So you actually have to have that in your mind right in the very beginning that every single day you are going to do that amount of words. It's not a case of like, I'm only going to write when the mood takes me. Yeah, it doesn't work for me. I find that I have to live in the story. Um, Mm. My husband always jokes that he knows we're deep in a book when we talk about these people as if they're real. The characters come and live in the house with us. And we go, well, of course, Lucy did this today. And I'm really worried about what Homer's going to do because, you know, and we talk about them as if they're real people because you have to live in the story. You have to hold all of those threads in your Mm. hands all the time. And I find that if you stop, it becomes really easy to lose faith and courage Mm -hmm. or write yourself into a corner and feel that you can't get out of it. But if you have to keep going, you do. It's like method acting. Yeah, you just resolve the problems. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's never failed me yet. It's not for everyone, but it works for me. I'm glad it does because you you bring out some amazing stuff. But what have we got planned for the future apart from carrying on writing? I mean, are you going to stay in your little house in Mill Hill for a long time or are there bigger dreams afoot? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's really funny because people talk about retiring and I can't imagine that I would ever stop writing. Um, Mm -hmm. P.D. James brought out her last book at 92. Ruth Rendell wrote into her late 80s. I fully intend to write until they prize the computer from my hand and tell me I'm gaga and it's not making sense anymore. I mean, I would love to keep writing novels for the rest of my life. It Mm. is honestly the best job in the world. It's preposterous that I get to just sit and make stuff up. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as I say, we have a really, really happy life Obviously, it would be brilliant if I got a million pound book deal and we could have a house on the coast or whatever. But to have the privilege to keep doing what I do would be the greatest happiness I could imagine. That does sound rather good. When you make it, not when, not if, when you do make it, okay? Remember to send a ticket over for your little friend here if we're ever allowed to fly anywhere anymore. (laughs) You'll be at my book launch, baby. (laughs) So I know that you were going to be coming out to South Africa before the pandemic hit. Any chance of seeing you out here on our shores? And if you do come, what chance would there be that you'll be setting up like an author, meet the author and actually getting South African public really invested and involved in what you've been doing? Seeing as you are South African... I am indeed, and I would love nothing more. You know, I'm really plugged into the South African book scene. Obviously, I follow lots of South African bookshops online and Mm. other South African writers and publishers and editors. So I'm very much aware of what's going on, and I would so much love to be more part of the scene um, and to champion the work that people are doing and just be a part of it. I was due to come out last year for a family wedding, which has now been postponed four times and which just breaks it's so heartbreaking because obviously our family is scattered across the world and mm. it's the one one of the rare opportunities for us all to get together so believe me as soon as we can we're coming and i would just love to get to meet lots of of south african book people well why don't we set up and get sue or or Paige nick or somebody to set up to do a q and a with you with mike nickel or one of those people I, I went to one that they did the other night you know an online one and you can just zoom in and watch have you done a lot of those during the pandemic you know, I don't have a book out at the moment, so... But, um, I mean, just talking to you as an author, absolutely. you don't have to have a book out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have to say the technology, limiting though it is, has just been an amazing tool to be used. Mm. I'm 
part of a number of writers groups here. Um, last year, I did a playwriting course with the National Theatre, and our National Theatre group has stayed kind of united, frequently meeting on Zoom, bringing in writers to talk to us. Um, and I think that that kind of thing is just is just brilliant because also it transcends geographical barriers completely. Mm-hmm. And I think hopefully that is something that we can keep going forward. Well, I mean, you've you just got such the most beautiful face. I just want people to see it as much as possible. And, and talking about that, um, would you ever go back into acting? Well, you know, I am very, very involved in amateur theatre here in the UK. I, I don't feel that I have the skills to go professional and Lord knows it's hard enough <laughs> to do anyway. But I'm currently playing Malvolio in a production of Twelfth Night. We're in rehearsal uh, for a company So you're cro- crossing gender boundaries here, are we? <laughs> I am. I am. I'm playing her as a woman. But um, yeah, we're doing a brilliant production with a company called Garden Suburb Theatre and we'll be performing in a clearing in a wood at the end of August. So I'll be getting my yellow stockings on. <laughs> oh, listen, you're going to have to absolutely get somebody to like film it and put it out for us. We'll get it all <laughs> over the place. This is something I've got to see. It would be fantastic. Oh, I mean, the joy of doing Shakespeare again and the joy of being in a rehearsal room. Mm, I don't mm. think I was born to be a writer. I'm much too sociable and and I'm just so loving the opportunity to work with people in a rehearsal room. It's great. Uh, Okay, so one bit of advice that you'd give to anybody who said, I want to write a book. I have a great idea. I'm going to be the best author ever. What is one word of advice you as a published author would give that person? Uh, Finish. Finish the book. (laughs) <laughs> it sounds really <laughs> stupid, but when I mean finish, I don't mean just finish a first draft. I mean, work it until you actually can't work it anymore. My most recent book I wrote, I then worked with, I paid a professional editor to work on it with me, and she was brilliant. Mm-hmm. I then had it professionally proofread, and my agent has now done two further edits on it. If we do sell to a publisher, um, they'll do another three or four edits on it. It's never finished. Keep polishing, keep working. You can always make it better. Okay, I think I'll stick to plants. At least I know a lot more <laughs> about them. People have to ask me, is this right? <laughs> so that's one thing I need to know from you. Do you get like quite twitchy if they want to change things and you really love that? Are you not um, precious? Well, I mean, I was very no. precious about mine. I was like, no, you can't change that because that's what it's called. You can't say, well, prairie is something to do with America, when in fact, that's what the kind of style of planting is. I mean, having to explain things to people drove me nuts and I didn't want it to change. But I mean, that's a, that's a technical thing rather than mm. a, a creative but it is. thing. You do get like, you get attached to what you've written. I mean, I think, you know, someone put it really well the other day. They talked about your response to any kind of criticism. And obviously, an edit is a criticism. Mm. And I think the first thing you have to do is feel it. And often you might feel it a bit personally. And then you have to really think about it and separate your ego and your affection for it from what really serves the work the best. And I push back on a really tiny fraction of edits. Every now and then I'll go, no, this is crucial. It has to stay exactly as it is. But by and large, I I do believe that if you're working with the right people, then they're generally working for the the greater good of the book. Mm. So, yeah, um, I mean, I've been writing professionally for 30 years. I can't be precious. (laughs) I just can't. Um, I'd be exhausted if I was. 
Okay, and one question from I, I would love to, to know the answer to. If there were only five books that you were allowed to keep, which five <sighs> would they be and why? I know it's a hard one. I'd have to put Dracula top of the list because I think it's the most magnificent book. It's extraordinarily modern in style and it's just stayed with us. Mm. Um, George Eliot's Middlemarch, mm-hmm. which when I read, I wanted to grab people in the street and go, have you read this? Because Austen is nothing in comparison. She's so bitchy and clever. Mm. It's genius. Okay, that's two. Uh, Catcher in the Rye, a lifetime of love for one of the greatest first-person narrators ever. Uh, and then I'm going to pick two much more recent ones. Piranesi by Susanna Clarke, which I thought was one of the most exquisite, dreamy, beautiful, evocative books I've read in I years. I haven't heard about it. What is that about? Well, Susanna Clarke wrote Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which was Mm -hmm. this huge magical realism book that was huge in the early 2000s. And then didn't bring anything out for about 15 years. And then Piranesi is about a man who lives in a kind of infinite set of halls. Some are under the sea and some are above. And it's wonderful and dreamy, but then it resolves itself into a really clever mystery. It's so beautiful. I can't recommend it. Sounds interesting. It also sounds like a bit of a Nando's sauce. (laughs) (laughs) And then number Um, five? And number five would be Joseph O'Connor's Shadow Play, which is about Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula, and his relationship with Henry Irving, the actor-manager. And I actually stalked Joseph O'Connor and found his email address. He's a lecturer in Dublin uh, to write him an email because I was so blown away by how brilliant it was. I loved Mm. it. (laughs) Okay. It's interesting to know what, what books people feel that they wouldn't be able to live without. You know what I mean? It, it changes so radically from what you know about the person to what you, <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and especially if it's an author with what they write to what they will keep at home. Yeah. I mean, I'm a fantastically eclectic reader. I'll read anything, mm. really. I think you can learn something from anything that you read. Yeah, I go through periods. I have my periods, like Picasso had a blue period. I had a beat generation period. So <laughs> you read everything in that particular genre and then you look back at it and go, would I do that again? Probably not. But there's some books that you won't get rid of, obviously, because you can just sit there and look at them and remember all the stories, which is a good thing. So if people want to find your books and they want to get them. Are they on sale in South Africa or mainly online? And um, how does one go about finding it? If you just do a Google, you know, one is always loath to send people to the monster that's named after a South American river, but um, they're all on there. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't know how much, how many of them would still be sitting in South African bookshops, but mm-hmm. uh, please do keep an eye out. And uh, audible versions, any of those? Yep, there are audible versions of After Isabella, What She Left and The Afterwife. Mm, okay. So they're so. all they're all online available. On, I'm a huge audiobook fan, so I was very excited to have audiobooks. Yes, likewise, because I was a, a member of the listeners' library, and I had to keep doing that. I mean, whenever I went driving anywhere, I'd be listening to books the whole time, and it's a lovely way. And I'm I'm so glad that podcasts are you know catching up, and and people are starting to listen to those and thinking, oh, if I can do this, and I can listen to a book as well. Nothing better than having the real thing in your hand, though. I have to be honest. 
rosiefiore.com, I would imagine, yes. <laughs> uh, yes, rosiefiore.com is my website. Okay, and it's so lovely to catch up with you again and see your beautiful face. And we hope we'll ditto, see, ditto, we see you back here in South Africa so we can enjoy you in the flesh. But I, I promise I'll Absolutely. behave. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> oh, don't behave. Please don't. <laughs> no, we'll go out and we'll go and play at the theatre again. Those were great days and, and, and sadly missed. But I'm so glad that you have gone on to do such incredibly amazing things. I'm, I couldn't be prouder if you were my own child, I'll be honest with you. Oh. Rosie, thank you so very much for giving up your time and and your expertise to have a chat with us. And um, hopefully we'll catch up with you again soon. Take good care. Thanks, Melanie. Bye. Bye. And for everybody else, of course, don't forget, you can go and have a look at her website. And of course, don't forget to pop into the other rooms in the reading room. It is a multidimensional space, after all, the place where you can think about anything and perhaps make it a reality. Bye-bye. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.